When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 195, No Distinction. Political realignment has long since happened to Wales over the first two centuries since the Act of Union. Civil wars, brief republics, and reconstruction and resurrection of the monarchy in its aftermath, and the rise of the eventual Georgian monarchs, had created a world in which Wales would be unrecognizable to those who came before Henry VII and those who came after George III. Wales was, in the 18th century, largely influenced by politics that centered on elites. That is not new. The nobility and richer classes dominated all the conversations, at least in the public square. The slow assimilation of Welsh politics into England had continued during this period and had advanced to the point where most of those who owned land in Wales were English speakers who had little interest in talking of a nation called Wales, let alone Cymru. So let me take a second and talk about something that might create an issue, and I kind of wanted to do my best to address it up front. So with that in mind, here we go. One, English was still not the language of the majority in Wales, and would remain largely the secondary language until a transition occurred at the beginning of the 1900s. Nationalists, looking back, might see this transition as a betrayal of the culture and language, but keep in mind the pressure on the Welsh population at every point of life to learn English, especially in the Victorian period and afterwards, were immense, and... In order to access the levers of power, the lingua franca, the the language of the day, was English. As more and more Welsh political people were itching to obtain political power, it was not Cardiff or Swansea or Wrexham that called them. London, the seat of British power, had become a flame to all those moths seeking to tame it. Over time, as industrialization would begin in the latter half of this century, the oils from the colonies far and wide continued to pour in, and the pull of wealth, fame, and power, which could be had in the capital, was always going to win out over the farms and fields and the day-to-day life of Welsh agriculture and villages and small towns. Often, as numbers grew in both rich and less well-off to these power centers, such as Liverpool, Bristol, and London, more and more Welsh people began to feel disconnected from the past. Often I think of my own grandfather in this case, who had been brought up speaking Welsh as his first language, who, in 
the early 1900s, when he moved to Canada, refused to even use the language again, other than when speaking to relatives who visited very rarely. To him, Welsh was a dead language in Canada. My father told me he, he only knew one phrase in Welsh, and he knew that it was a nickname that he had been called as a child by his father. Now, it's not a polite statement, so I, I won't quote it here, nor am I completely sure that what my father translated or thought it meant is actually what it was, so it's hard to really know. Um, but two and three generations later, none of my grandfather's family know Welsh. I took some lessons when I returned to Wales in the early uh, 2000s, which... If you hear my pronunciation, you would recognize how well that went for me. Um, my two older children remembered one of the songs they were taught in their first years in school in Wales. And realistically, that was about it. So, as you can imagine, when you're focused more on England than Wales, it would create more Anglophones or English-only speakers in these enclaves that were growing in London and other places in England. And once that ball starts rolling, it's hard to retain the old language as you continue to move away from it. In this period, this level of disconnect between the ancient culture and the new entered into a level of a new sense, which was now growing of Britishness. No longer were they Welsh, Scots, or English in the eyes of those who sought to make London home, it was far more likely that they would view it from the aspect of it was one nation, one land, one Britain, if you want to use that phrase. It doesn't mean that everybody was like this. Let me be clear, when you moved to these countries, it didn't automatically throw off you know, your older culture, but there was a general move towards this ideal. And it wasn't just happening in London or Bristol or Liverpool, as politicians born and raised in Wales also had this slowly growing mentality. Anti-slavery politicians and activists such as the Welsh-born Richard Price talked not about Wales, but about English liberty. Often the ideal of an Englishman or woman was now conflated with the national understanding. Being British or English was one and the same, and few, at least in those areas, doubted it. Historian Garrett Jenkins described this as a process from the Enlightenment, something that grew from it as people started to evaluate what languages did and acted like. The idea that cold logic would overcome romantic and mythologized notions was then translated into language. It was seen that the old language of Wales was the language of poets and of artists, and England was, and English was the language of economists and politicians. And so, therefore, it had more enlightened ideals expressed through it. It's, of course, completely bonkers, but that was the mentality. Gone was the bard crying out for lost Llewellyn or brave Owen. Now philosophers talked about Englishness and the plight of the English man, even in the colonies or in Britain itself. This, of course, is very different from 
the Scottish and Irish experience, which were still trying to escape this forced or agreed-upon union. Now, that is not to say that all felt the same or felt equally about this new nation of theirs, but they're still likely, in the 18th century, you have what grew to be the height of Welsh assimilation into the English nation-state. Yet, even as the floods of Welsh people arrived in London and these other cities, there was also those who felt strongly that the culture needed to survive. In 1715, the most honorable and loyal society of ancient Britons was founded in London. The Association of London Welshmen were also organized to carry on, amongst other things, an annual St. David's Day dinner in order to mark their Welsh culture and history. Much like a number of societies and charities at the time, it was also meant to help the families of the London Welsh who were in need and needed help. This morphed into an establishment of a school, which the then society called the Most Honorable and Loyal Society of Ancient Britons. In 1751, Richard Morris founded the Kimaradrian Society, a charitable organization to care for ancient Britain's school and as well to manage the charitable and cultural ideals. The school at the time had been struggling financially and was close to bankruptcy, so it was an important step that saved the school. And the aims of this successor society were threefold. First, they would first hold frequent dinners where collections would be taken to help the Welsh Charity School, as well as any London Welsh people that were in need, as what had happened under the previous society. Second, they would have cultural discussions based on literary and antiquarian explorations of the history of Wales, something which became very academic in nature and actually spun off into its own thing in part because of this. Through this, they would help to publish Welsh language books and finally, they would help the Welsh at home who lacked any kind of secular institutions to assist them. Keep in mind in this period, there's no such thing as a government social safety net. Most of the work is being done by charitable groups because the previous organizations that used to do this work, the Catholic Church for one, now either no longer exist or don't have the financial ability to carry these things out. So now you have an enlightenment period which drives charities into the homes and lives of the poorer classes of people who are having to struggle along without access to education, without access to regular food, living in cities where squalor ran amok at times. So, and of course, disease and, and health issues would be ever present. These meetings that they had, these, these secular antiquarian discussions spun off into different groups and societies that continued the Welsh education and poetic developments. Meanwhile, Lewis Morris, the brother of Richard, also developed plans to make something like an academy for them to publish Welsh poetry and to be sort of a, a source point for Welsh literature, remembering that printing was always more difficult in Wales while there was now printing presses. The, the origin and coordination of that was still always originally in London, and it still remains strong at this point. 
Yet, even with all of this unique place for Wales and the Welsh language and culture in Britain, they still saw themselves through an English light. Richard Morris himself said, there should be no distinction between Englishmen and Welshmen in our day. So eventually, these London-based groups would spin back to Wales, and one of the other things they would do is help fund and found Welsh cultural events and archaeology that slowly developed Welsh national thought. And because of it, it would return to publish consciousness at all levels. But that was still a hundred years away to really growing to the nature that we think of today. Even as these groups were beginning and given a place for the Welsh language outside of Wales, among Welsh landowners, a number of whom were not of Welsh origin themselves, much was made of their links to England and its government, and by extension, the language. If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siècle, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts. Many enjoyed the peace that afforded them thanks to the stability of the English-Georgian government, so they were more than happy to push ideals that reinforced concepts of deference, conservatism, in the sense of a sense of comparison to radical change rather than our modern conceptions of what conservatism is, and continued freedom from war, so liberty via liberty for peace rather than liberty of rights. 
the ideals of liberty and justice were seeds that began in England long before they found fertile ground in Boston and Philadelphia. Most of these ideas started here during this period where the peace dividend gave time for people to develop thoughts and ideals that went beyond just the simple understandings of the day or the simple concepts of previous generations, although I think that's not being fair to those generations. One of the outgrowths of the Enlightenment is our mentality to think that the Enlightenment was more intelligent in its mentality than, say, previous generations, even though there's not necessarily a link to show that. But the philosophies that came out of it affect us in our secular life today. The few families of Wales that controlled the majority of the land holdings also magically controlled most of the political offices in Wales, I'm sure you're surprised to find out, and represented Welsh MPs in Parliament generally. This included, amongst others, the Wynns, the Morgans, and the Vaughns, a name long associated with power players in Wales, and what would be seen as a slightly new name, the Moistons. These families were so intrinsic to the areas they controlled, this meant that they had almost an inheritance level when it came not just to land, but the assumption of the power that went with it. As the historian Garrett Jenkins mentions, at most there was likely no more than 25,000 adult males who were deemed to be within the pale of the Constitution, or in other words, had the right to vote. The mass of the populace did not possess the necessary wealth and appropriate education or the leisure time to engage in the practice of politics. As the 18th century wore on, fewer and fewer of these voters remained. In some cases, the number of eligible voters in one particular borough was five. So in other words, five people decided who the MP became. Negotiated control of who was an MP was done through patronage and in descendancy and having various stand-ins who would be positioned as MP until the new inherited heir came to the right of age to be able to inherit the position, and in some cases, if that particular heir had no interest in that position. These negotiations amongst the rich and nobles meant that in some cases, eligible voters may not even have cast a vote throughout their entire lives. For example, in Cardiganshire, Flintshire, and Denbyshire, there were zero contested elections from 15 from 1754 to 1790. It reminds me of an episode of Blackadder I once saw in the period that we're talking about, where the character of Baldrick was, in quotes, voted as MP by the only eligible voter in that borough, who just happened to be his master, Edmund Blackadder. This laughable idea unfortunately, was quite the reality in a lot of areas. And the reality was as if no one ran against these men, and of course, in that day they all were, uh, then there was no competition, there was no vote. That's the reason why there was so little votes being cast. And you could live your entire voting life never actually casting one. Upstarts who came from industrialists, lawyers, merchants, and others who gained their fortunes on their own would, at times, decide to take on the established order 
and try and run in elections against the families that represented so much of Wales. Of course, they would then immediately run into roadblocks, which would make it difficult to enter, make it even more costly as expenses continue to rise to keep them from becoming too much of a thorn in the side of the powerful. In one quote I saw, an election could cost up to £25,000, which is an exorbitant amount of money in the middle of the 1700s. Costs of elections, specifically the need to spend for meeting and greets in the modern sense, or for bribes or other expenses, usually made the prospect daunting. Some who did challenge others for seats could find themselves bankrupt or having to sell off large amounts of land to make up for the expense. Even winning didn't save you from this particular problem, and the losing party may take small solace or a bit of schadenfreude for having seen you become less powerful, less financially stable because you won an election. Also, a rather unhelpful aspect was the lack of an anonymous ballot. If you voted, it was made public, especially to your employer or landlord. This meant often companies and landholders would strictly enforce a vote in favor of their chosen candidate. So even if you had an election, there was nothing particularly free or fair about them. This would also mean that this slate of candidate vote would be done not just in the case of voting for who the owner of the company likes, but also if the owner of the company is worried that its biggest business that it works with, the biggest payer to their finances, doesn't like who they voted for, then they won't buy merchandise from them or use their services. So even that can be used as a way to coerce people to vote in the way they wanted. And coercion and intimidation was used openly to force electoral votes to go the way the local leadership desired. In the case of Sir Watkin William Wynne's agents during the election of 1774, they would go around and warn freehold voters that they would pay a price in cuts to grazing land because, of course, the landholders would cut those accesses, landholders, of course, being the winds, increased land taxes or anything else they could claim that they could rain down upon them if they voted in favor of those candidates. Sheriffs and bailiffs who would often run the elections were also themselves often partisans. In some cases, they were bought off. In other cases, they were related to one of the candidates or at least owed their place to the family of one of those candidates. Crossing one of these powerful families could mean real trouble. As an example, William Middleton, who was the sheriff and returning officer during the 1741 election in Denbyshire, helped out his relative John Middleton during the election against those very winds. His maneuver was to arbitrarily disallow 549 votes and in the election to his relative. This outraged the winds to the point where they appealed to Parliament to remove the sheriff and got him thrown into prison for seven weeks, who simply did not cross one of the most powerful families in North Wales and expect to get away with it. As an aside, if you are wondering, secret ballots were not implemented in the United Kingdom until 1872. 
After the elections, some MPs were well-known movers and shakers, leading factions such as the father of the previous Sir Wynne Williams, the third baronet, who was considered a political mastermind and fierce political actor. His son, on the other hand, who effectively inherited the position where when he came of age, he was then elected to this same seat, was uninterested in the whole thing and hardly even bothered showing up to Parliament. A number of these inheritance MPs were far from concerned about the Parliament they were elected to, whether it was because of other interests or because they simply just didn't have the desire to work in a political sphere, they would at best show up occasionally to their job. They were elected for and generally do nothing while there and then go home. The trappings of power were important, but the execution of that power was meaningless to a number of these men. Family members only really cared that they had an MP because it meant that it gave them access to the real power. This was in the hands of the ministers of government, who controlled much of the day-to-day -day business of that government. Ministers and bureaucrats were the ones who handed out the appointments to office, commissions, salaries, and all of those things that were so desired by these family members. Plum positions in a nice area was very much desired. A place for a cousin or a brother who needed something to do would also be a key inducement. Another aspect was to drive interest of the local nobility and landholders was to ensure less government oversight and less tax payments, something that would come back to haunt the English upper class when the colonies started to get upset about the very thing that these nobility had been avoiding. The Georgian period of government was not democratic one and was not particularly well known for being willing to look ahead and evaluate the future. It was still far better than the absolute monarchies that generally ruled the much bigger European powers of the time. Yes, the rich got richer and the power was concentrated into few hands, but even that crumb was a big step up from the absolute monarchs who ruled generally in the 18th century. The explosions in America, and more importantly in France, would have far-ranging effects that would shatter much of the myth of monarchy and start to force even Great Britain to reconsider the ways of governing. And as more radical forces began to splinter out from the Enlightenment mindset of free will and liberty, a new form of nationalism and a new form of understanding about what this liberty might mean became a much more popular and accessible idea to the growing educated populations in Wales. And with that, I'd like to thank you all for listening today. Thank you for your comments and all of the things that you do to help support this podcast. You, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can always reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com. I do try and reply as soon as I see them. Uh, as well, you can reach me on uh, Twitter at Welsh History Pod. Uh, you can also reach out to me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. And of course, we have a Patreon where you can help support the research that goes on for these episodes at patreon.com forward slash Welsh History. Thank you all for listening. Have yourselves a great day. Take care. Bye bye. 
Welsh History Podcast is a member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. To find more information on them, you can do so at evergreenpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts.